And so Ronnie just read for us 1 Kings 18, 1 through 19, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning as we're continuing our series through the book of 1 Kings. And uh, we are at my favorite part of the book. And this, this last part, when you've seen this, this uh, battle brewing between Yahweh and Baal, between Elijah and Ahab and his wife Jezebel. It's good times. And, uh, and so... Um, as we're beginning to look at this, I want to tell you, uh, one of, Darren and I, we don't watch just a ton of different shows, uh, but one show that we do really love, uh, or have we've gotten into this season, is The Amazing Race. And uh, it's, a, it's a super awesome show because it's like these people doing these cool, adventurous things all over the world. You're learning about these other cultures. Phil Keegan's there, who's totally awesome. And, uh, or Kagan, I don't know how to say his name. And so... Uh, but there are two people, there's a couple that's on this season that are the coolest. It's Penn and Kim. And uh, they are the coolest people on this season. And if you disagree with me, you're totally wrong. And um, apart, from, apart from Dusty and Ryan, those guys are awesome. Anyway, so Penn and Kim are amazing. And, uh, and, and the, here's the thing that's cool about them is they're the, they're the old people on the show. They're in their 40s. And, uh, um, but, but here's the thing. Unlike Brent. Brent is leaving his 40s. Just wanted to point that out. And uh, so, uh, but these are Penn and Kim. Uh, they're, they're actually a really cool couple uh, to watch on the show because you can tell they love each other. It's amazing. Like there's other couples on the show and you're like, you guys are married. How, why did you get married to each other? You hate each other. Like that's a common thing. But Penn and Kim like each other. They like being with each other. Well, so there was one episode in which I'm not giving much away, but, but, but Kim was given the task of bungee jumping off of the second highest dam in all of Europe. And, uh, and so leading up to this point, she was, she, you could tell, you could sense it. She was not excited about this. And, but she was the one who was selected for that, that detour thing. And so she was the one who drew the straw. She was going to do it. And, uh, and so they're heading up to this, this dam, and they get there. And this thing is amazing. Like, if you've ever been to the Hoover Dam, and you look down that, that is crazy deep. And it's kind of a scary thing to look at, and it kind of veers down a little bit. Well, she's, she's got to get on that thing and bungee jump down it. And, uh, and she's rightly scared. And her awesome husband turns to her, and he is, again, throughout the show, he has been awesome. They've been so great together. And he turns, he's like, listen. You're not going to die. It's the amazing race. They don't want you to die. And that was his comfort for her. And I loved it so much because that's like, yes, that's the perfect thing to say. These production people, the last thing in the world they want is for you to die at this point. And so what happens? She puts on the harness. She steps out on that ledge. And eventually, she leaps off. And he was like, it was amazing. He was so like, the genie was so proud of her for, like, doing that. He's, like, crying for her. He's, like, I just thought of, like, life without her. And I'm, like, I'm thinking, like, if that's Dara jumping off that, I'm, like, I've got five kids coming. Like, like I can't do that. Like, that is not that, like, okay, I would be feeling the same thing. I can't lose her. And, um, but all that to say, she had this great fear she had to face. But she got to leap off into it with a harness. But in this text today, we see two men who were tasked with facing something incredibly great, but both, neither one of them without a harness. So let's look at this text here together. Actually, let's pray, and we'll look at it together. So Father, come before you, and we thank you for your word. 
And we thank you for Ronnie reading it for us and you, you uh, giving it to us. And, and, and so we pray for the lessons in it that you would impart the Spirit uh, within us and among us to open our eyes, open our ears to hear what you want to say to us in this. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So look at verse 1 with me. After a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Third year of what? The drought. It's bad times. Third year of the drought. And he said, God said this to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab. The imperatives, it's a command. God says this, get up, go to the dude who wants to kill you. Go to Ahab. Now, Elijah's been with this widow up in Zarephath. Remember last week he met the, the widow who's taking care of him? He's probably been her, with her, for a, her and her son for a year, year and a half, two years, something like that. Uh, we don't know how long it took for the brook that he was hanging out in to dry up before he needed to go up there to get her to take care of him. So he's been with her for a year, year and a half, something like that for a while. And now God's come back and said, get up, go present yourself to Ahab. I'm going to send rain on the surface of the land. Remember, why did God withhold the rain? Because he was trying to prove that he was greater than Baal. And so if God's going to send rain, it means this thing's coming to a head. This is like we're coming to the climax point of this story here, and God's starting to set the scene. So verse 2, Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now, you got to think, Elijah's a dude. We talked about that last week. He's a real person. He's not a Bible superhero. He has real fears, real hungers. He needed a real person to provide food for him. And so this has been a point for him where he knows Ahab wants to kill him. Ahab really has been searching for him. We're going to learn later. He's been searching for him. He's been sending out search parties to all surrounding regions, searching for this guy because Ahab knows this guy's the one who's stopping the rain. And now God comes to him and says, hey, why don't you go present yourself to that king who's a terrible guy? Because you think, he's been living up in Zarephath for a year, year and a half. If you've got some event out there, you got a problem back home, you know that one day it's going to be, have to be dealt with. What is it, what's happening the whole time you're hanging out leading up to that point? It's sitting in the back of your mind. The whole time, you're like, one day that's going to come. One day it's going to come to a head. One day I'm going to have to go meet this guy. One day I'm going to have to make that phone call. One day I'm going to have to go have lunch with that person. It's sitting there in your head thinking this is going to come to a point, and all of a sudden here it is. God has come to Elijah and says, okay, today's the day. Get up. Head back to town. Kind of interesting. Uh, you know, A.W. Uh, Pink pointed this out back in 17, verse 24. Um, at the end of that, after he raised the widow's son uh, back to life, she, that, that, that was a, a big point in, uh, in her life. And the woman turns to Eliza, verse 24, and says, Now I know that you're a man of God and that the Lord's word from your mouth is true. I wonder, and A.J. Pink pointed this out, and he, he was wondering if, if maybe part of her, her testimony towards him at that point was a little bit of an encouragement towards Elijah. Because even if you're in a position where you feel like, God has called me to be this or to be here to do this, there's times in which you can really waver in what you think God has called you to do or whether you're the right guy to do it or whether this is really happening or whether God's even real or not. 
Um, and, and so like, as many of the deacons know, like after we started the, the prayer service, about three weeks in, I was like, guys, do you think we should do this? <laughs> I was like, I've already blown up Wednesday nights. Like, it's a, it's a big thing. And, uh, and they were like, no, we totally should do it. I was like, okay, I'm glad you said that. Okay, let's keep going. And, uh, and so there's times you can, you can think like, okay, I believe God's leading me to do this or to us to do this. But then, like, man, I'm starting to doubt this a little bit. And for Elijah, he had someone else coming in. It's like my conversation with the deacons where Elijah says this. I mean, this woman said, no, I see that what God is doing in you is right. This is true. This is really happening. And then the very next verse is, okay, God says, okay, now I've got a big thing for you to do. I've got a big thing I need you to go handle. And, uh, and so, uh, and so here's, here it is. So transition back. The famine was severe in Samaria. Now, verse 3. Ahab called Obadiah, this new dude. I'm kind of, it's kind of interested in this guy. I'm actually really excited about him. This, he's, the, he's the main guy of the sermon this week uh, because I was reading this devotionally and just kind of reading ahead for this sermon series, and he really stood out to me. This passage did, even though most commentaries kind of skip over it. Um, but Ahab called for Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. So maybe that means he was like the White House chief of staff, um, and so he was really high up, had a really significant access to the king, King Ahab. But it's like the text says, wait, 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 who's Obadiah? So Obadiah is this guy who's in charge of the palace. But look at how the verse goes on. Obadiah was a man who greatly feared the Lord. What an amazing summary statement of a person. Like, the Holy Spirit wrote his Instagram bio, and here's what it says. He greatly feared the Lord. Like, what an amazing statement about a person. Like, if your name is in the Bible, not, like, not only is his name in the Bible, that's a big thing. But beside his name in the Bible, this dude was Hall of Fame faith. He greatly feared the Lord. What, a, what an amazing thing to say about him. But look, here's what's interesting about this guy, because I want you to look at his context with me. So look at the context. Who did he work for? King Ahab. A terrible king, a terrible guy. What was his culture? What was his, like, where did he live? He lived in a culture that was leaving the faith in the true God and was embracing idolatry. And then what was happening in his land severe drought for three years. And what do you think that did to his local economy? Killed it. Killed it. Killed local economy. What do you think inflation was doing at that time? We think inflation is pretty rough. What do you think, it's ha- what do you think is happening here when, it's in a, when, when you can't even grow food? I mean, you think a loaf of bread costs at that point. And so at this, this point in this guy's life, here are these external pressures on his life where he's got a bad boss or a, a kind of a, a a boss that the Bible is very clear was evil. His job is, is wrapped up in that guy. His culture is moving away from his God. And then he's also dealing with a local economy that is tanking, where inflation is rising. He's seeing his savings plummet throughout this whole thing. And so he's got these external pressures on him. But yet in the middle of this, in the midst of this, he was still defined as being a man who greatly feared the Lord, greatly feared Yahweh. 
And there's something pretty cool in this, and that outside pressures, outside influences on our lives, our jobs, our bosses, our economy, our city, our weather, our weather events, all of these different things like do not have to dictate for us who we're going to be and what we're going to believe and how we're going to react to things and how we're going to react to life. They don't have to dictate for us. This text very clearly states in the middle of this pretty tumultuous thing happening or this pretty anti-God life that he's got going on. It's not like hashtag blessed going for him, but in the middle of that, what he says, no, 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 even though I've got these external pressures on me, these external influences on me, I'm going to remain faithful to my faith. I'm going to remain faithful to Yahweh. That's what I'm going to do. That's who I'm going to be. That's what's going to define me. And that's what did define him. And here's the thing, is the call from Christ is to be just like Obadiah. And this, look at what it says in Philippians 3. Philippians 3, keep your finger here in 1 Kings, but Philippians 3, verse 16. It says, is any case, Paul is writing this to some, to some friends at a church in Philippi, and he says, in any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. What he just said is, you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, so now your life should live up to that. Join in imitating me. So Paul said, I am following Christ, and if you need an example, follow me as I'm following Christ. And pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I've often told you, and now I'll say again with tears, that many live as enemies to the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. But catch this for you, the believer in Christ. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. So you and I, if we believe in Jesus, if we've submitted our lives to follow Him as the Lord over our lives— as we've come to faith in Him, when we respond by faith to His work on the cross, His death and His resurrection, then we enter into the new creation. We become a new person, become a new creature. And then as that, we are brought into His new people. We are ushered into being God's chosen people. We are brought into that new people with new values, new emphases, and new hearts. And as we grow in Christ, the Spirit of God works within our spirit to lead us and to teach us to love and to value the things that Christ loves and values. That's called sanctification or growing in Christ's likeness. And as such... Our citizenship, at that point, when we enter into God's chosen people, our citizenship transfers from here, from our world, up to heaven. That becomes the new realm to which you and I belong out of our faith in Jesus. And so that becomes the place from which we receive our morals, from which we receive our marching orders, from which we receive the things that we should care about. That's the place. Why? Because who's there? Christ is there, and He is the source. Our citizenship as believers in Christ is in heaven with Him where He is. And Paul says this, and we eagerly await Him to return 
for us. And verse 16 headlines this, In any case, then, as citizens of heaven, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Your task as a believer in Christ is then to bring heaven here. That is your job. That's what N.T. Wright says. He's like, listen, we're not, citizenship in heaven is like not escapism. It's not trying to leave here and go there. No, no, no. Your job as a citizen of heaven is to bring heavenly realities into fruition here in your world. That's your job as a citizen. And so Paul says, then imitate me. Imitate me as I follow Christ because your citizenship is there. You have a different heritage now. You have a different home base now. It's with Christ. It's with Christ. So it's like you're swimming in a stream, just like all with all the fishies, all the salmon of Capistrano. Okay? So you're swimming in this stream, and you're swimming along, and all of a sudden you believe in Christ. And what he says is, no, no, no. Okay, now you're going to swim the other direction. You're going to start swimming this way, going upstream. You have a different role now. You have a different marching order now. You have a different person you're listening to and following now, and it's going to look weird. And it's going to be difficult, but that's the call of Christ. That's the call of Christ. And so here, as a citizen of heaven, I want you to see this. Go back to 1 Kings. What did Obadiah's faith lead him to do in his day? Look at verse 4 with me. This is, a, this is great. Okay. This is such a side note footnote for such a mammoth thing that happened that I'm like, it's, it's amazing that's such a small thing, but I want, really want to bring your attention to it. Look at verse 4. He greatly feared the Lord. And so because of that, because he greatly feared the Lord, this is what he did. He took a hundred prophets and hid them, 50 men to a cave, and provided them with food and water when Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets. That entire event gets one verse. I don't, it's crazy how that happens. That whole event, there's full-on genocide happening in Jezebel and Ahab's kingdom. They're going to all the prophets, all clergy, all prophets who work for Yahweh, who are leading people to pursue him, and they're going to every one of them and cutting their heads off. That's happening. That literally was happening. And so what Obadiah did is he was in a position to see this was taking place. Remember, he's White House chief of staff. He's right there with Ahab, and he sees this, and he believes in Yahweh. So what does he do? He goes and finds a hundred, and he hides them in caves, and he figures out how to provide food for them. Imagine the risk that is, that is common that he's facing for that. Is it treason at that point? I don't, I don't know. But you're clearly defying what the king and what his wife are doing. Significant risk to this guy, just like, like you've seen the movie Schindler's List. It was based on a guy named Oscar Schindler. Uh, he was a, actually part of the Nazi party. I was reading about him this week. He was part of the Nazi party uh, and, uh, from Bavaria. And uh, so he had a, a factory in which he, he made some, some things, manufactured stuff. But during the wartime, uh, that was converted into developing or, or manufacturing wartime goods. 
And so he, he was seeing the plight of like what was happening to the Jews around him. And so he started employing them to work at his factory because he found out that if you have people working in your factory who are essential to the building of wartime goods, then they would be exempt from being carried off to concentration camps. So he started employing as many Jews as he could find in order to exempt them from being carried off into concentration camps. And so he, at one point, he had over a 1,000 Jews working for him, and then he would falsify the records with the government stating that this stay-at-home mom or this, this plumber or whatever were master mechanics in order to keep them employed. And then he spent the vast majority of his personal wealth on bribes to the SS so that they wouldn't come in and check stuff out. That's the story of Schindler, the Oscar Schindler, Schindler's List. When this, like what he said to this, he said, I felt that the Jews were being destroyed and I had to help them. There was no choice. And in the same exact way, Obadiah, at severe risk to himself, hit a hundred prophets of Yahweh in caves and then provided for them in Jezebel's slaughter. Now, remember, he runs, the, he runs the, the, the palace. This is severe, severe stuff he's facing. But our, this is from uh, the Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. And, uh, there's a principle in this that we see. Look, we don't choose the times in which we live. And we don't choose the circumstances that we face. We don't choose all of these things. But we are called to respond to our times with faith and courage. That's the call. And like uh, Frodo, as he's given the ring uh, from Gandalf, that was Bilbo's ring, and he's got to go destroy it. He's being told about this. And he turns to Gandalf and he says this, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf said, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that's given us. And it's like, what an amazing thing. And that's the thing that Obadiah faced in his day. He had this severe thing happening and said, I've got to do something about it. And so it was in his power to care for these men. And so what he did, he hid them and he cared for them. And so back to the present day, verse 5. Back to present day. And so now this man of great faith is going to be tasked with one more great job from God. So Ahab said to Obadiah, go throughout the land to every spring and to every wadi. That's a riverbed. Perhaps we'll find grass so we can keep the horses and the mules alive and not have to destroy the cattle. They divided the land between them in order to cover it. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went the other way by himself. They probably had a crew of soldiers with them. Um, I don't know. I mean, unless Ahab is just trying to get away from Jezebel for a little bit, and they're just kind of like, you know, being, going camping by myself for a couple of days probably sounds fine. I don't know. But very likely they had a couple of people with them. Uh, while Obadiah was walking, but uh, the point is they split up. While Obadiah was walking along the road, Elijah suddenly met him. That's kind of Elijah's thing. He's just like, bam, I'm here. Bam, I'm gone. Like, that's kind of his thing. Bam, he's here again. Okay. And uh, Obadiah recognized him. And then he fell face down and said, is it you, my Lord Elijah? It is I, he replied. Just English. I feel like it should be, it is me. I'm just being honest. Okay. It is me. I feel like me. You put that in the, it doesn't matter. In the predicate of the sentence should be me, but it doesn't. Anyways, it is, it is, it is me. I'm going to change that. He replied, 
go tell, go tell your Lord, Elijah is here. Is that you, Elijah? Yes, it's me. Go tell your Lord, go tell Ahab that I'm here. Now, for you and me, we're like, okay, well, just go tell him he's here. Like, no, no, no. This, this is the mammoth task, the second big task that God is calling Obadiah to follow at this point. Like, why would Elijah need a go-between? Well, he's trying to get a meeting with the king. So, so you, you know, if you run into someone who knows him, it might be helpful to help set things up with him. He's probably a busy man. Uh, I don't know. Verse 9, but Obadiah said this. Now, Obadiah, at this point, is not thrilled about this task. Obadiah said, what sin have I committed that you're handing your servant over to Ahab to put me to death? As the Lord lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent someone to search for you. And when they said, he's not here, then he made that kingdom or that nation swear that they had not found you. That's the reason why God sent him to go live with the widow, because they have sent searchers everywhere, and those people had to swear that they didn't find him. And so he, he, he's kind of getting sarcastic. Verse 11, and now you say, go to the Lord, go tell him Elijah's here. Like, when I leave you, the Spirit of the Lord may carry you off, because you're like, you know, the guy who's like shows up and disappears. Like, like maybe the Spirit of the Lord is going to carry you off somewhere else that I don't know. Then when I go tell Ahab, and he doesn't find you, he's going to kill me. Like, pay attention here. Obadiah's concerns. He's a real guy, too. He's a real person with real concerns. He's not a storybook character. And he says, he's worried that, like, if I go tell Ahab, and then you disappear, then I'm the guy who's punking Ahab. That's what's going like, to happen here. And so Obadiah's thoughts... He's like, listen, he says, he goes on in verse 12, but I, your servant, I feared the Lord for my youth. Wasn't it I, like, who reported to my Lord that what I, like, when I went, hit, sorry, wasn't it reported to the Lord that what I did when Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets, I hid a hundred prophets to the Lord, 50 men to a cave, and I provided them with water. And now you say, go tell your Lord Elijah's here. He'll kill me. Here's what he just said. What are you doing, dude? Like, what are you doing? I risk a ton to save those dudes. Why are you putting me in this position now? Like, why are you doing this? And you've not proven to be consistent, man. Like, that's what he's saying. He's like, when you get carted off somewhere to be safe, then God, what he's going to do is he's going he's gonna to come after me. I'm going to be the one left as the punching bag. I kind of understand it. I kind of understand his concern here. Well, then Elijah, verse 15, says this. As the Lord of armies lives, in whose presence I stand, today I will present myself to Ahab. It's kind of that point in your life where, like, you're kind of stuck. You know that you've got to make the phone call to that person that you've been putting off, and you're just dreading this thing. And it could be you've got to cancel this thing, or you've got to... Like, you've got to try to make something right, or you've got to apologize, or you've got to confess something, and you're, like, just putting this off. And you're like, I just do not want to do this, or I don't want to, I don't want to have a lunch with that person because they're kind of scary, you know? And you're, like, just putting it off. And finally, you reach the point where you're like, okay, I'll do it. Well, first here, verse 16, or, for, yeah, verse 16, Obadiah finally does it. He's like, okay. And he went to meet Ahab and told him, 
And then Ahab came out and met with Elijah. See, here's the thing is the call of Christ is not always the most comfortable thing. Sometimes he will lead you, the Spirit of God will lead you to do things that make you uncomfortable. And there is, for Obadiah, a sense of duty uh, to obey what he's been called to do. But here's the, here's the thing, is, is what has Christ called you to do? What has Christ called you to do, but you've kind of been putting off, been neglecting? Where you, it's in the back of your mind, you're like, man, I need to do that. I feel like the Spirit is leading me to do this, and I just haven't, I just haven't done it. I just can't do it. I can't bring myself to do it. What's, what's that been? But on the positive side, what is it been? And like if you think in your life, like where you've seen this work out, where you knew the Spirit of God was calling you to do something you knew was difficult, and you finally did it, and you saw it work out, you're like, yeah, God used that. God brought restoration in that relationship because of that. You see, the Spirit of God works in us, and He leads us to do things. And so what's cool about this for Obadiah What's really neat in this text, what struck to me is, is that Obadiah was used in a moment leading up to this moment of God's, one of God's great showcases of his glory. Like God, like if Obadiah refused to do this at this point, would God have just used someone else? Yeah. He would have just used someone else. Or he would have just said, fine, Elijah, just go, go do it yourself. And that would have been the case. But guess what? Obadiah obeyed, and he did it. And now his faithfulness is recorded for you and me. He faced this fear. He pursued God by faith, and it was recorded for us. So now he got to be a part. He got to play a role in God displaying his glory over Baal for all of the nation. Obadiah got to play that role. Could God have used someone else? Yeah, he would have if Obadiah told him no. But he didn't. He didn't. He followed by faith. And so what does the Spirit of Christ want to do in our world and include you in it? He's going to work in our world. The question is, are you going to be a part of it? Are you going to be a part of it? So when you, what do you do when you feel the Spirit leading you, prompting you? Obey Him. Obey Him. And look what this led to. This great faith of Obadiah set up a display of the great faith of Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, the one ruining Israel? And he replied, I've not ruined Israel, but you and your father's family have, because you abandoned the Lord's commands and you followed the Baals. And so now summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And so it's setting up this great battle that we're going to see in two weeks. And so what does the Spirit of Christ want to do in the world, and what does He want to do to include you in it? Let's pray. Father, we come before You. And we thank You for this Word in which we see this man wrestling with Your call on his life and what You're asking him to do asking Him to step out in faith. Because you want to use Him for how you're working in the world. And so I pray that you would 
embolden us, that you would encourage us with this. Lead us to be people who would rise up to the occasion when you prompt us to do things in our world, whether it's share the gospel or to restore a relationship or to take the high road in a, in a situation. When, you, when you're calling, calling us to do this, I pray that we would be people who would step up and respond because you want to do things in our world and you want to involve us in it. And so open our eyes, give us spiritual eyes to see how you're wanting to be, how you're wanting to use us. And so we ask for a filling of the Spirit, God, a fresh encounter that would embolden us then to be ready and quick to hear and to obey. And so we thank you for Christ because it's through him that all this is possible. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So